You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area. Local investors, local knowledge, local experts. Our journey starts now. Hey everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. My name is Russell Brazil. I am an associate real estate broker with Arla at Properties. And I'm Sarah Frank. I'm a realtor in DC and Maryland. I'm also on the District Invest Group with Russell. And we're getting ready to head into the holiday weekend here for Thanksgiving, so safe travels to everyone. Um, I was at the NAR convention last week and had uh, some interesting travel adventures. Yeah, I didn't get to go. I didn't even think about going, really, because it's so new. But it looked really fun. It looks like a lot of people were there. Yeah, and well, flying into a hurricane is uh, obviously not best practices. So it took me about 20 hours to get from D.C. to Orlando. But did you do a one-man airport bar crawl? Um, actually, in the Nashville airport, I did. I tried yeah. to outdo you. Did they have a lot of good spaces, like good, uh, you know, little pubs and stuff? So the Nashville airport was great because it was multiple bars there that had live music. Oh. So I, I was stuck there for eight hours. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. I think the best one I went to at San Diego airport was the PGA tour lounge. Hmm. Yeah, it was great. It was really, met some really great people who were also stuck in the airport for 12 hours. Yeah. So trying to get to Orlando, I, I was started off with a flight out of uh, Reagan national airport that got canceled. So then I rebooked one out of Dulles, and then that got canceled. Then I got a third flight out of BWI that went to Nashville and then to Orlando. And while I was in flight to Nashville, uh, the Orlando leg got uh, canceled. So that's how I got stuck at the Nashville airport. Did you end up Ubering? I thought you said you were going to fly into one airport and Uber to the conference. Yeah, so what I ended up doing then was I got a midnight flight about eight hours later from Nashville to Tampa, got into Tampa at about... I think about 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. and then caught an Uber from Tampa all the way to Orlando. That was like a 90 minute Uber ride. How much was it? Uh, it was like 200 bucks. It was not as much money not, as you would think. Yeah, I thought it would be more than that. The, the problem was getting an Uber because um, it, I called like three different ones. And by the time they got really close to me, and I think when it finally started to reveal what the destination was, they would all cancel the trip. Um, so it took took about a half hour to actually get an Uber. Um, I think it was my fourth try when, before someone would take me to Orlando. There's no, I guess it's Florida. There's no public transportation. Uh, at least not at one in the morning. Oh my gosh. A saga. And then you got to go to. Then I got to go to the NAR annual convention. So that was really cool. Um, so if you're a realtor out there, what, what the convention is, is we have three or four days of the conference, tons and tons of informational sessions that really crisscross the spectrum. And then the last two days of the conference, we have what's called the regional caucuses. Uh, NAR is divided into 13 regions. Each region has a caucus. And then the following day, we have the board of directors meeting where we vote on NAR and housing policies. That sounds exciting. Yeah. So this is my first year on the uh, NAR board of directors. I more than likely be on it for the next six years. Um, each year, obviously, depends what positions I fill, but but likely the positions I will fill over the next six years make me eligible to be a board member. So you'll be switching positions. Yes. it's not So it's not like you have a term limit and you have to do one thing and then... 
No. So each each local association and state association gets a certain amount of seats on the NAR board of directors. Um, and so basically you get one seat per one seat on the board for every 2000 members that you have. And so our local association, GCAR, has 11,000 members. So we get five seats on the board. Mm, OK, cool. And so aside from voting on stuff, you guys had breakout sessions. Tons and tons of breakout sessions, um, very informative things, things on how to build teams, things on YouTube, things on how to increase sales. But then also, even aside from the sales aspect, there's lots of sessions on housing policy, um, uh, you know, different different things. How to So, you know, weirdly enough, Carl Rove was one of the speakers. So, like, he did a whole um, session on how realtors work with the different political parties to achieve their ends. So there's a lot of a lot of policy sessions in addition to the typical sales sessions. Yeah, that's interesting. You said you went to a YouTube one that was really good. Yeah, the thing I found fascinating about YouTube was so my idea for YouTube was we were just going to repurpose a lot of our Instagram content to YouTube and one of the first things that the person speaking said was the type of content that does well on Instagram and Facebook does terrible on YouTube. So it's a different, completely different type of format that you want to work. So right on Instagram, as we know, reels are what the big thing is right now. Right. So we're talking 30 seconds, 60, 90 second clips that are very, very informative in that really showcase your personality as an individual. Well, that stuff does terrible on YouTube, apparently. Why did they say YouTube people are going there not to meet people, they're going there to gain information. So long form is the most important uh, type of content on there. And things that don't show your personality and are really giving tons and tons of useful information. And she said that the the magic number on YouTube is eight minutes. Um, Clips have to be eight minutes or more. Um, anything she does, seven minutes, six minutes, five minutes, um, never gains traction. So that's interesting because I think part of our strategy we talked about last week was we'll just use the same exact content from TikTok or Instagram and just put it into YouTube shorts. Did she talk about shorts at all as being important? Yeah, she did. And she she does not have any uh, business being driven to her from the YouTube shorts. Mm. Right. So it doesn't hurt to put it on there. Right. But now we know if we put that kind of stuff on there, um, we shouldn't feel bad if it doesn't gain traction because that doesn't gain traction for anyone. So what is she putting out there? Like, like here's how to look for a house. It sounds really stupid, but you know, like the very granular details, like tutorial style. Yeah. So a lot of the process. stuff they refer to in her session and another session was what they called evergreen content. And what evergreen content is, is it is forever applicable. So mm-hmm. everyone's putting out content right now on um, rising interest rates, right? Um, and that stuff's great for Instagram, but that stuff doesn't do well on YouTube because we're talking about a very specific six month, uh, span of time and your YouTube stuff is going to be interacted with over the course of years. Right. So two, three years from now, when we're not in a rising interest rate environment, that huge video that you thought was awesome, isn't going to gain it, isn't going to continue to generate business for you on YouTube. So content that is always applicable. And so mm-hmm. a lot of stuff she went into is she was out of the Savannah market, the top 10 reasons to move to Savannah, Georgia. 
the top 10 things that suck about Savannah, Georgia. Um, so really informational in things that are constant. And I think we talked about this with Amar like many episodes ago about like his the blog post he had about bedrooms and the basement bedrooms. That's like, lived on for years. Right. So that would definitely be a good example. So for us, it'd be moving away from like market updates and doing like zoning stuff in D.C. and Baltimore. For YouTube, could, that stuff would be right. great. Like Airbnb laws, stuff like that in a short form, eight minute video. Well, I guess that's not short. It's like medium term. Yeah. Midterm everything. <laughs> but it really, I, I find it fascinating just to learn that different types of content do better on different types of platforms. I mean, it makes sense because think about what you go to YouTube for. I go to YouTube to like not even watch. I used to watch music videos and stuff like that. But now we have a question. We'll go to YouTube, yep. look for an answer. Well, so that's one sense. of the things she was very key about was YouTube is a search platform, mm-hmm. right? So Instagram and Facebook are social media. So you're going there specifically to into to uh, interact with people and different types of people. You're not going to YouTube to interact with a person. You're going there to search for the information that you want and whoever's get the best information, um, that's what you're drawn to in that platform. Well, I think it helps to have a, great, a good personality, like Robilt, like his whole thing is like his silly jokes and stuff yeah. and people love his personality as well and the way that he edits the videos too shows his personality. So. I think that's important, but it's not as important in like getting the hook and getting people yep. to follow you as Instagram. It's algorithm based, but your suggestions are more part of the algorithm versus what is given to you and fed to you on the site. And it's interesting because there's another agent who does really, really, really well on YouTube that's out in Utah. And I had listened to a podcast that he was on and he didn't articulate it the same way that she did. But the things he said about the videos of his that do the best um really were reinforced because he does videos on like, if you're going to move to this section of the Salt Lake City, Utah, um, these are the commuting routes from here to the downtown area. And this commuting route gets snowed over during the winter, right? Right. And so it it was very specific informational things. And he also did why you should move to this city and, you know, Salt Lake City and this neighborhood, Mm -hmm. um, the top 10 reasons for this. And so... um, Again, th- these are two agents that don't even know each other, but they're having success doing the very same things. Right. Yeah. And that's especially that's a good idea for us, too, in developing our content. We have so many out of state or relocation investors slash house hackers or whoever that want to know. I mean, a million times a week. How many times do we get asked? What are the good neighborhoods in Baltimore? You yeah. Know, and that's just something that would be so much easier to create a video, create content on it and then just point to- people towards that page. Yeah. I mean, our, I work with a lot of military relocations and. I always like to work backwards when I'm talking with them, like, all right, what base are you getting transferred to? Oh, you're going to be at Fort Belvoir. Then maybe these are the locations that we should be talking about. And so, right, there's a whole series of potential uh, videos. Are you PCSing to Fort Belvoir? Think about these areas. Are you Mm -hmm. PCSing to Fort Meade? All right, let's talk about these areas. Right, right. And with Baltimore, especially in Canton, where we are, so many big development projects going on that affect traffic patterns. There's the railroad cutting through the middle. You can go 95 or you can go through the city and there's challenges doing that as well. Um, So that's definitely, that's a good idea. Yeah. So tons of informative sessions. Um, Always very interesting to meet realtors from all over the country. Um, You know, we've got people obviously from the biggest cities and from the smallest cities um, that are all doing very interesting things. Like, so I get to meet, um, uh, former West Virginia state 
president for, for the realtors. And, um, in the entire state of West Virginia, they only have, um, 3000 members, um, which I was like, wow, in the whole state. So like that's smaller than some of the medium sized brokerages in our market. Yeah. That's interesting. And that's gotta be really spread out too. Yeah. Do they have like more centralized associations or just the West Virginia Association of so Realtors? The way NAR is set up is everyone in NAR is part of three associations. They're part of a local, mm-hmm. they're part of a state, and then they are part of the national association. So I assume West Virginia does have multiple locals. However, if we look at Washington, D.C., for instance, there was only one local association in Washington, D.C. And weirdly enough, with Washington, D.C., the local association, our local association, is larger than the state association and crosses state borders. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone is a member of the local, the state, and the nationals in each perform different functions. Um, a lot of those functions are lobbying, so lobbying at the local level, lobbying at the state level, and then lobbying at the national level for our industry and homeowner rights. Mm. Yeah. So talking to all these different agents from different areas, are people experiencing a lot of the similar things going on in their markets that we have here in the DMV, or do you think it's decentralized a little bit? So the market does seem to be slowing down everywhere, but the degrees to which do seem to be very different. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the people in our area, and I could spend more time with them. Um, things are slower. They're getting better deals, but things are still moving. Uh, but when I talk to some of these people that are in rural Kansas, for instance, you know, they're they're talking about sitting on a listing for six months. Wow. Um, that that would be crazy here. If mm-hmm. if we price it appropriately, we're still going to move in under thirty days. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But they have a. I've been I talked to a lot of agents in some of those areas that they're pr- pricing things appropriately, and they still right because they just don't have enough buyers. Right. Oh, well, and so in DC, the past thirty days, I think the stats were that average days on market is thirty-one days, but that's taking into account condos. Yeah. So and condos have been a buyer's market for three years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a. It is. A, it's always hard to find the stats, but it, was, it is interesting if when we do look at the stats. I bet if we look at townhouses, row houses, single families that um, I bet the days on market are probably half that, but even half that is still going to be considerably more days on market than they were a year ago. I think I think single family days on market um, a year ago were averaging about 10, 10 right. days on market or right. something. Yeah, you're getting pre-market offers. There's just a different environment. So when you say slowing down, for people who don't know, what are the indicators of that when the market's yeah, cooling so off or slowing down? Here's a great indicator, um, and this is a great indicator as to how slow the market is. So during the COVID boom, um, roughly 10% of properties nationwide uh, experienced price drops, right? So even during as hot of a market as we had, still one out of 10 properties had to drop their price at some point, right? So that just shows you, right? You can't just make up a number. It still mm-hmm. has to be appropriately priced. Um, from 2015 to 2020, which was a normal seller's market, the percentage of price reductions varied from 20% to 35%. Mm-hmm. Right now, um, national price drops are sitting right at about 21%. So one out of five properties are experiencing price drops. Now, people are honing in on this and 
they think this is really, really scary. But now we're back to what's considered a normal range. The last two years where 10% of them experienced price drops, not normal. 20%, perfectly normal. In fact, all the way up to 35% um, is normal for a seller's market. Once we get to, say, 50% of listings having price drops, that's that's when we're more in buyer's market territory. Um, and to see that, we would need much, much more inventory than we have now. So even though rates have shot up dramatically, um, the reasons we're, we're not seeing price declines and we're not seeing abnormal amounts of price drops is there's still just not enough houses for sale to meet the, the needs of a growing population. Right. And that's something I struggle with a lot with clients right now with Baltimore is that the days on market are longer. And a lot of these people are coming from DC or Virginia where it's very unusual to see 35 days on market and a couple price drops, but I'm still, you know, they want to come in with these low ball offers and I'm still saying, well, no, because there's no other houses available. This yeah. is, there's, you know, one or two in this criteria that you have and we can't come in 50 K lower because they'll just say, no, we've been waiting for 35 days and we'll wait for 35 more. Well, right. It's a very interesting dichotomy because D.C. and Baltimore are very, very, very different markets and they're only 40 minutes apart. Mm-hmm. But an appropriately priced house in D.C. is almost always going to move unless it's above one point five million um, is almost always going to move in under a week. Mm-hmm. That's not the case in Baltimore traditionally. Um, it may have been the case during the pandemic, but traditionally it's not crazy for a house to take 30 to 45 days to sell. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly appropriately priced in, in Baltimore, even in the really nice areas. So when we have DC people coming from a seven day turnaround market to a market that turns around in four or five weeks, they think, oh, it's mispriced, but it's not. That's just, mm-hmm. that's the speed at which Baltimore moves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not, um, you know. It's okay to be aggressive in offers, but it's definitely been growing pains, the shift between what was very much a seller's market into buyers having a little bit more power because it's like a power grab vacuum right now. Like, oh, we want subsidies. We want two on buy down. We want this. We want 50K under asking. Uh, and it's just kind of putting Yeah, I saw this one on. mo- uh, meme and it, it said that uh, sellers feel like it's um, 2021, but buyers feel like it's 2008, yeah, right? right. Um, and it's neither. It's somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still generally a seller's market. Um, but we're able to get seller subsidies. We're able to get repairs. We're able to get some reductions on price. But we're not We're not getting $50,000 off of a $400,000 property. Right. We might get ten dollars or $15,000 off. Right. Yeah. And it's it's tough to explain that sometimes. It's like, well, you we want them to at least read the offer before yeah. they reject us. 50K below is just like not even, um, you know, as a seller, it's got to be offensive in some ways. But Or you get the DC people who really don't like, because they're like, if 50K below on a million dollar property, it's not super insulting. Right. 50K below on a $300,000 property is super insulting. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And so there's there's that disconnect when you're working with a lower price unit that that big that number is not big on a million dollars but it is a significant uh, you know percentage of the property's value on this lower price right, property right like fifteen to twenty percent of the property's yeah. value so and then you ask for seller subsidy on top of that it's like oh my gosh yeah crazy. and you you look uh, right so the average list to price ratio a year ago was about one hundred and two percent right so if a, not that this is a real value here, but if the property is priced at 100000 it sold for 102000 on average. Um, the list to price ratio currently is 
99%, right? So right. properties are still selling for 99% of the list price. Um, so when you're going in 5, 10, 15, 20% below in some cases, um, you're you're not going to get a response. Well, right. And then because the buyer's mentality is it's 35 days on market, the sellers are probably freaking out, right? They're probably so stressed and want to get rid of this property. But in this different market, that's not that bad. Yeah. 35. I was, and it's hard to explain. Say, no, I think they would rather take the property off the market and wait and rent it out, put it back on the market at another point. Then, then take this low ball off. Yeah, and that's where a lot of my clients don't get this, but they, they're like, well, how low can we go in? And I'm like, I really need to talk with the listing agent to fill them out, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's where if I talk to the listing agent, I can I can tell from the inflections in their voice and the dialogues that they use, are they desperate, right? Mm-hmm. Are they begging me to make an offer? And if they're begging me to make an offer, I can come in really low. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're like, yeah, we've had a decent amount of activity. We know it's going to take us, a, you know, a few more weeks or a month to sell, and we're okay with that. Well, if there's no, fee, if they're not desperate, they're not taking a lowball offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and making that lowball offer could shoot you in the foot because they could be, they could be desperate in the future, right? Thirty days from now, they could be desperate. Um, but you've, if you've made a lowball offer. You might have just pissed them off so that they just don't want to deal with you at all. Um, I personally have had that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always better to feel out the situation, communicate with the other agent, and see where they're at. And if they're and when you do find those desperate people, you know, then you can press a little harder, mm-hmm. right? Or ask for more, you know, concessions, something like that to to make the deal. And we see two and buy downs seem to be the hottest thing right now, which I think is so great. I think we talked about this in another. I can't remember if we have, but tell us what a one buy down is. So it's basically the seller's opportunity to pay the lender directly, the buyer's lender directly to prepay the difference in more 2% mortgage interest rate in the first year and 1% in the second. So if the the note uh, interest rate is 7.5%, the seller is paying the lender directly to, to buy it down basically to a 5.5% in year one and a 6.5% in year two, which makes a huge difference in the monthly payment of of the buyer. Yeah. And, and it's outside of the restrictions that you have on seller concessions, the 3% for, um, you know, FHA is 6%. Then there's conventionals, 3%, 2% for investor loans. And that's outside of that. So theoretically, if you offer a sweet enough price to the seller, you can get this two and buy down in combination with the seller subsidy in theory. But what usually happens is buyers want to go in below ask with a two one buy down and a seller subsidy, which isn't going to net the seller enough to make it worth it for them. Yeah. So, um, I have this buyer on one of my listings now trying to negotiate $20,000 off. We're already under contract, been under contract for a while. Um, and the, their agent's like pissed at me that we won't come down another 20 grand. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why he's and he, you know, he's huffing and puffing. Like, well, you're going to have to put it back on the market. And what do they want to go down for? Is it an inspection item or? No, it's because with the we've been under contract for a long time. And so with the rising interest rates, now the buyer doesn't qualify for the property. Oh. And we're like, fine, we'll put it back on the market. Um, yeah. He's like, but, you know, you're going to sit vacant and it's going to take you a long time to sell it. I'm like, well, my my seller doesn't have to sell it. He'll, yeah. he'll just stick a tenant in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, he he on the buy side thinks he has more power and he's getting upset that mm-hmm. we won't bend to his will. And we're like, uh, it's okay. You can. Yeah. That sucks. It's not really anyone's fault. It's just kind of how the market shifted. Yeah. But, but you know, 
$20,000 a huge concession. Why should they have to make that concession? Just because the market shifted and the payment doesn't make sense for them. Yeah, my guy's not going to lose a ton of money just because yeah. your your buyer's interest bar, uh, rate has gone up. Right. And it seems like there's this mentality that since the interest rates have gone up so much that there's no buyers anymore, which is absolutely false. <laughs> there's still plenty of buyers, 7.5%. Like we've seen so many graphics on Instagram. It's like the same house now because you can get it for less money, the payment shake out or whatever. It's like the example I saw was like $450,000 house. Now you can get it for $400,000, which isn't, you know, Yeah, what people true. forget in our market is, um, so we're a high high cash market, right? So mm-hmm. um, during the early part of the pandemic, I think 35% of sales were being purchased in all cash. Uh, that dropped down to a more reasonable Twenty percent. It's still in the twenties, um, yeah. But now it's it now it's creeping back up, right? Because the finance buyers are leaving, the cash buyers are coming back out. So like we're approaching thirty percent all cash purchases again. So right, if someone's buying in cash, they don't care if interest rates are two percent or eight percent. Right. To them, there's no difference. And that shocked the heck out of me last week when I was going for, I was submitting an offer for a buyer and we had a great offer. The, the agent comes back, says we want highest and best. And it was just us and one other person. And then we were like, we'll come up a little bit. We upped our escalation clause a little bit and sent it in. We're like, we got this. We're good to go. And then the guy calls me. He's like, I'm so sorry. They came back all cash, no contingencies, closed in 14 days. It's like $400,000 house. Yeah. I was like, Oh my gosh, they're still out there. I was I was hot about it, but what can you do against an offer like that? Yeah, and right now the all cash people they have more power mm-hmm. um, because the finance buyers are more timid, um, mm-hmm. and so we're that's why we're seeing all cash transactions increasing as a percentage right now, um, and that's who's winning offers. Um, and sellers, right? Sellers are aware of the interest rate issue, so. If they're looking, I just wrapped up uh, one over the weekend. So I think we got fifteen grand off the list price. So not a huge amount. Um, it was like a three hundred thousand dollars property in Germantown. Um, but we get a little bit off because we're cash, and we're going to close in like ten business days or something. Um, and you know we beat out financed offer. I think we beat out a higher financed offer, uh, but mm-hmm. they took our cash offer. And then this is funny because um, that same buyer had made an offer on another property and they took the higher financed offer. And I said to the listing agent, I was like, I was like, don't make this mistake. You've been under contract before. I was like, you should be taking the cash offer here and not mm-hmm. chanting, come back on, you know, a second and third time. Well, sure enough, she texts me um, yesterday. She's like, we're terminating the contract can your cash buyer still come back in? I'm like, no, we're under contract with something else now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they weren't the best agent. I told them what would happen and it happened. Um, but poor decision. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cash hope, is just so not much listening easier. To this podcast. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, we could cut that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so cash always, Important, especially. And I feel like when I talk to agents from other areas in the country, they're like, what? People are buying these $400,000 properties with cash? I'm like, I don't know. I mean, know people buy million-dollar properties with cash. Like, Well, yeah. Not in Baltimore, but no. <laughs> yeah. So in Baltimore, it was extra shocking. Like, this uh, Canton house and... Well, what people forget is, while Baltimore is not a rich market, it is right next to D.C., which is a rich market, right? Mm-hmm. So all this D.C. money flows into Baltimore. That's why... Mm-hmm. 
all these 200 and 300, like, so all these people that think they're middle class in D.C., they go to Baltimore and they act like they're the ballers pushing out the small guys because they get 200 grand in cash because they're getting pushed out by the guys with a million in cash in D.C. Yeah. Love Baltimore. Yeah. Can live like a king there for sure. <laughs> yeah, you just have to pay a crap load of taxes. Yeah, the property taxes are a different story, but you know. Yeah, I think your uh, I think your property taxes on your property are more than mine. It's like two point one percent or something. Two point two six, I think. Yeah. Oof. Which is a lot, people. It it's is a, a lot. lot. It's a lot that it's prohibitive. Like we used to have a woman who lived across the street from us. Shout out Barb. She had to move. So her house had been paid off forever. It was her mom's house. And she was retired. And she's like, I can't afford, like, the property taxes on the house. Like, I got to move to live with my brother. He's just going to sell it because it's too much of a pain for us to pay the property taxes. Like, which is probably, her house is similar size to mine. It's like six grand a year. If you're retired, that's not insignificant. Yeah. So that's like six grand a year on a 250000 ish yeah. house, right? So six thousand in taxes on a DC house would be like a seven hundred thousand dollar property. Mm-hmm. The tax rate in Baltimore is roughly three times the tax rate of Washington DC. Yeah, think about it. it's five hundred bucks a month, basically. So if you're wanting to rent the property out, even if it's paid off, you got to make at least five hundred bucks a month to Just cover to pay, taxes. To, to pay the taxes exactly. And so if you want a cash flow on something and you have a mortgage as well, that's why when people come to me wanting to use FHA, I'm like, we'll use it. Um, but you know, you need to view money saved equal to cash flow, or else you'll be in a very bad head headspace about this. That's why I always preach like, even if you're not cash flowing on your first property, like a house hack, just think in terms of the money you're saving, not renting, and that will make it feel a lot better because it's impossible unless you're you're putting down more than seventy percent, or sorry, putting down you know more than thirty percent your LTV seventy or, or less. There's just no way to cash flow. Yeah, and so. If you're curious what the tax rates on the metro area are, Baltimore's about 2.26% of the property's value. DC is about 0.85%. Montgomery County is about 1.1%. Prince George's County is about 1.3 to 1.4% of the property's value. So that's inching up to almost double DC's, but not quite. There's a lot of special taxing districts in mm-hmm. Prince George's County, too. Um, the city of Mount Rainier, parts of Brentwood, University Park, which have uh, taxes that can be comparable to um, Baltimore's. But weirdly enough, the lowest tax district in our entire metro area is D.C. proper itself at 0.85 percent of the property's value. And the assessments are usually lower than the market value anyways. Mm-hmm. You have an $800,000 house. They probably say it's worth 675 to 700. Um, and then your assessment, then your then that's going to be multiplied by the tax rate. Baltimore's not only is it the highest tax rate, but they often tell you the house is worth more than it is. Yes, which can be very problematic in calculating things like ARV on a renovation, um, calculating you know how much equity, like when you're doing your net worth calculation, how much equity you actually have in the house versus what the assessed value is. Yes, because the city might, uh, you may have an actual ARV of say three hundred thousand. And then the city's like, no, your house is worth three fifty. So you're paying taxes on three fifty, but the actual worth is less than that. Yeah. And so that can become you basically become underwater sometimes on that calculation, which is And Baltimore fighting the tax assessment is particularly hard. Well, so let's talk about why Baltimore's taxes are like this. The city was built for a million plus people, the infrastructure, et cetera, yeah. and it has had a declining population for the past fifty years. Longer, seventy. Longer years. than that, seventy, yeah. Baltimore used to be the largest city in America. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it used to be the wealthiest city in America. So you have a shrinking tax base, shrinking number of people to pay these taxes and the same amount of infrastructure that existed. And where the taxes are heaviest are obviously your Canton, your Fed Hill, your Fells Point, the people Park, that can afford, the to, that pay can afford to pay the taxes, people who are coming from D.C. or wherever. Um, you know, a lot of people recently in past years have moved, like Russell was saying, from D.C. to live in Baltimore because they can live a higher quality of life there. Uh, afford more house. Yeah. So 70 years ago, I think their population was somewhere around, correct me if I'm wrong, a million. And today mm -hmm. it's sitting around 500,000, right? right? So 70 years ago, you had a million people, twice as many people to support things like the police, the fire department, schools. city services, schools. And most people of the higher tax brackets in Baltimore are sending their children to private schools. Yep. Which is another. Today we have half the population to pay for the same amount of services. Mm -hmm. The cost of those services continue to go up and up and up. And the uh, the incomes of the people in Baltimore used to be very high. Today, they're very low, so they're mm -hmm. collecting less income taxes. And so they raise the property tax to really how to compensate. But that, in turn, doesn't allow the properties to appreciate as much, right? Because if you, are, if you have a $2,000 a month budget... Um, and 500 of that is going to your property taxes, only 1500 is going to your PITI, you know, that puts a ceiling on how much those properties can go up in value. Mm -hmm. When if you were to cut the tax rate in half, the properties would shoot up almost instantly. Right. And that's a conversation to have a lot with out-of-state investors because they ask, one of the first things they ask about appreciation, yeah. will this property appreciate? And I always have to say, just forget about appreciation. Loan pay down and cash flow yeah. is what is going to get you through in a Baltimore investment property versus in DC where you have, I mean, if you bought a property in 2019, like who's laughing because you have hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars of equity. That's not going to happen unless you're forcing appreciation in Baltimore. And even then, what happens frequently with investors in Baltimore is they force too much appreciation and the house literally cannot appraise for the amount of money they put into it. Yeah. And then they're underwater on it. And we see all the time in like the Facebook group, someone saying, why won't my flip sell in Baltimore? And you look at Google Earth, it's because all oh, the houses around it are boarded up. You can't change location. So Yeah, you, you saw that one careful. post on the Bigger Pockets forum, right? Yeah. Um, so I actually... I looked at her pictures and then figured out what, what property it was. It was somewhere pretty far north of Patterson Park. So I don't even know what neighborhood mm -hmm. you are when you get like two miles north of there. And so she had put on that post that her ARV was 2 to 220. So I was like, let me check the comps here because I'm really curious. So I checked the comps and I'm like, man, her ARV is like 140000 mm -hmm. Um I was like, you got this property that's sold for this, this one that's sold for that, that one's sold for that. So she's off sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars on her ARV. Well, so out of state investor. Well, on, that's what happens to out of state investors who don't work with a local agent in Baltimore. Because typically, when you're doing ARV calculations, you can look at the closest geographic sales. But in Baltimore, so much can change from one block to the other that you can't, you just can't do that. You're going to end up underwater on the house like she ended up. And it was horrible to read because I was like, let me go on Google Earth and yeah. see where this is. And sure enough, like pretty much the entire block was boarded up, which property values are nothing. Yeah. So it's interesting because we just looked at some properties on uh, South Conkling Street in Highland Town. And this is a really good example of this. Mm -hmm. Most Highland Town's actually pretty nice. Um, South of that location. Right. Um, but as you get further east and north in the neighborhood, mm -hmm. um, they're not as nice. So when we're looking at the ARV of some of these properties that we're looking at on South Conkling, 
so there's two different ARVs we come up with. There's the actual market value. And if you're going to flip it, that's what you want to use. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing a burr, well, then we want to see what can, what it can appraise for, which is going to be completely different than the market value. So there, the Burr um, ARV substantially higher than the actual because it is close enough to get high comparable sales. Mm-hmm. But if you were to put it on the market at those prices, it would not sell. Right. And right. that's where you have to you have to understand the nuance of it's not just the closest sales. South Conkling is a that far north is not. Not particularly nice. Three quarters of a mile south on the same street actually is pretty nice. I will put it on the record that I did tell you so on that one. (laughs) I said early on, I was like, you don't, that's not good. Which we didn't go forward with, obviously. It would have been good for a burr. I don't know. Because you think, like, the term transitional neighborhood in Baltimore implies a 20-year horizon, not a five-year horizon like it does in in D.C. So you got to be in it for 20 years to see the to really see that. But if value. your goal with a burr is just to recycle your cash, right? It is those neighborhoods that are on the periphery mm-hmm. is where you're going to be able to get the most cash back out of your property. Right, right. Yeah. Now that's not where I want to own rentals, but I also don't implement the burr strategy. Right, right. And the burr strategy relies solidly on having a competitive advantage in one of the arenas like purchase price. In-house contractor, you're your own agent, something like that. You save money on the disposition. And for a first-time investor, that would be tough to do. So anyways, we're going to wrap it up. We'll uh, see you guys next week. Have a good holiday. and Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, if if you observe. If you don't observe, it's just a good excuse to eat.